Last, uh, last Sunday, we started to look at the early stages of the Reformation, and we learned about the formal principle of the Reformation was the concern over the Word of God, and that was the underlying issue, but there were material issues that uh, interpretations of the Scripture that were also uh, contested. And so the formal principle would be in the Latin, sola scriptura, that is the authority of the word of God alone. But then there were also concerns about the material principle, that is, of justification by faith alone, or the Latin phrase for that is sola fide, or the importance of being justified by faith alone. And so we're going to consider this morning uh, that second aspect of justification, and uh, also looking at uh, the life of John Calvin to clarify the doctrines of, of the Protestant Reformation and the Council of Trent, uh, a council of the Catholic Church that arose to um, condemn the teaching of the Protestants on these two particular issues of sola scriptura and sola fide, or faith alone. And so the Council of Trent was the Catholic um, rejection of the Protestant movement. And so we're going to talk about both of these events. Uh, John Calvin um, is primarily uh, significant for the emphasis upon justification by faith alone. And his writing on that topic was very significant. Um, but if you've ever only heard of the name of Calvin, you might think of him as the tyrant of Geneva, the uh, the theocrat city with an iron fist, uh, throwing pious, otherwise, uh, people into prison, uh, even burning uh, Michael Severus at the stake, maybe being obsessed with predestination and terrifying people with, like, theories of election and that type of thing. Um, but uh, those aren't the topics that we'll be discussing at, at any great length this morning. But we'll just be mentioning his life as it's related to the Word of God and his significant uh, contribution uh, there. Calvin was born um, in uh, 1509, and if you have your handout, I'm pretty much on the life of Calvin going to follow these main points that are listed here uh, for you. So if you want to follow along with that. He was born in 1509 in a small town northeast in France, and uh, his father was pretty well-to-do um, and initially sent his son to Paris in 1520 to study for the priesthood, and, uh, but then he had, that was his intention, he wanted to send his son to Paris to study for the priesthood, but then he had a change of mind, he had some conflict uh, with the Catholic Church, disputes over some legal cases, involving him personally, and uh, it led to his excommunication. This is the father of John Calvin, and so instead, Calvin began to study law in Orleans, France, and he met there some uh, early reformers, same generation as Luther, a uh, man by the name of Melchor uh, Womar, and uh, that relationship significantly impacted Calvin and in 1533, he was converted at 24 uh, years of age. And I'm just going to let him describe in his own 
uh, words his coming to faith. He said, when I was a, yet a very little boy, my father had destined me for the study of theology, but afterwards, when he considered th that the legal profession commonly raised those who followed it to wealth, this prospect induced him suddenly to change his purpose. Thus, it came to pass that I was withdrawn from the study of philosophy and was put into the study of law. To this pursuit, I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my father, but God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. And first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery, to be easily extricated from so profound an, an abyss of mire, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Thus, having received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor. In other words, he said the scripture and coming into awareness of the true and living God impacted my desire to study the word rather than to study the law. And so he was starting to see a, 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 a change uh, of emphasis in his own life. But he did complete his studies. And in 1535, um, persecution broke out in France as a result of the Reformation tensions with the civic rulers. And so he, he was forced to flee France, and he went to Basel, Switzerland, and he met reformers like Bollinger, uh, Farrell, and Olivation uh, were residing in Basel. And uh, there he, he completed his first edition of his famous Institutes Upon the Christian Religion. Now... Um, he was only 26 when he wrote those, and they covered, they were in six chapters, they covered the teachings of the Ten Commandments, uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Sacraments, and then Christian Liberty. So it was a very concise, so when you hear the term Institutes of Christian Religion, it was more of a primer book to lead people to know what's essentially required of them in God's Word and to teach them accordingly. Um, it greatly expanded over subsequent editions. Um, in 1536, he spent six months um, in Italy working as a secretary uh, for Princess Renee. Uh, Princess Renee was sister-in-law of Francis I, uh, King of France. Um, and he was enjoying his work, and he had to make he took a leave of absence um, in August 1536, and he set out, he had some business he had to attend to in Strasbourg, and upon his going to Strasbourg, um, there was a need for detour, and it took him through Geneva, and he really had only planned to spend one night there. But shortly after, he was discovered, because he was this well-known published author of these institutes, even Luther had said that these were amazing uh, writings and that everyone should have a copy of them and uh, his reputation was significant and when he was found to be there other Protestants in the community of Geneva William Farrell uh, desperate for help to reform the Genevan church 
apprehended him basically and said, you can't leave Geneva. You may think you have a, a way in which you were going, but no, we're, you're needed right here. And uh, Calvin says uh, of that night in which Pharrell accosted him, he said, Pharrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me. And after having learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits, in finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement. So he prayed an imprecatory prayer on him and said, uh, yeah, you're, you, you want retirement so you can do all this writing in quiet and solitude? Well, God will curse you for that if you don't come and stay here and, and, and help us. Uh, and so by this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. And uh, so he was kind of in some ways subdued uh, beyond some of his own desires uh, for alternative purposes. And... 1536 to 1538, he began a ministry in Geneva that was from the start uh, filled with tension uh, against the city council. Um, you remember our discussion of Zwingli, perhaps? Zwingli uh, was kind of like a chaplain to the city council. He had much better relationship, whereas Calvin didn't have as good relationship because there were forces at play trying to pull the city towards Catholicism, and yet there was a, a Protestant minority that wanted him to be there, and so there was tension. Um, and Calvin and Farrell um, insisted that there were certain persons in Geneva that needed to be excommunicated from uh, participation in the ordinances. And he made demands, and he said, look, if we're going to be the church, you've got to let us be the church but we want to have the power to excommunicate sinners and the city council failed to comply and so Calvin and Pharrell decided not to comply with the Lord's table and they wouldn't serve the Lord's table. That created problems and he was forced to leave the city and go into exile in Stroudsburg in 1538 through 1541 he traveled back to Stroudsburg. It was immensely fruitful time for Calvin while he was there. He, he, he sat underneath of uh, Martin Bucer, who was a reformer as well, and learned from him some skills in pastoral ministry. While in Stroudsburg, there were other French speakers in exile, and he began to pastor these people while they were in exile. And... Um, and so they were actually probably Calvin's happiest years of his life because there he met in, in Stroudsburg Idolette de Bure, his wife, who he took in. And um, they, she was a former Anabaptist, and she was also a widow. And uh, tragically, their only son, Jacques, died when uh, quite young, 21 days after birth. Um, so he's understood suffering. And then... Seven years later, in 1549, uh, his, his wife, Idolette, also died, suffering from various diseases before her death. And at the age of 40, uh, Calvin was a widower. He was brokenhearted, and actually many people used that suffering as an opportunity to rebuke him, to say, see, 
you're not having the blessings of God in your life, are you really called to be doing this? And yet uh, Calvin pointed to his spiritual children and the pastors he was training in Strasbourg as being his true children. 1541, uh, his three-year exile came to an end, and he relocated uh, to Geneva again. The government there appealed to Calvin for some help because there was pressure from the uh, Catholic uh, community to, to rejoin the Catholic communion, and so he was actually invited to return. He didn't want to go back. Uh, he wrote to his friend Pharrell. He said, what, what avail will it be the ex ex exertions of a single individual hampered by so many, hindrances on every side? Here in Strasbourg, I have only to take the overnight of a few, and a great number hear me, not so much as a pastor as with the attention of reverence due to instructor. In other words, he was, he was at a place where he was loved by the people, and he didn't want to go back to a place where he was going to be hated by the people. I can, uh, that's, that's, a, 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 human nature can identify with that. Uh, but nevertheless, after much prayer, he returned in 1541, September 13th. And when he ascended the steps to the, the church, St. Pierre, he began preaching right where he left off. There was no comment, no, I told you so, he just kept on preaching. He went literally, he left with one passage, say Mark 15, and he came back with Mark six, um, 16, you know, so like, um, so he, he uh, demonstrated his appreciation for expository preaching, just like uh, Zwingli. So there were years of opposition, 1541 to 1555. <coughs> Calvin's reform work in Geneva was mainly a matter of preaching, but he also turned his attention to think through how the church ought to be structured. He um, uh, began to uh, establish uh, two times for preaching on a Sunday, uh, a morning and an evening. Um, he also uh, recognized that there were significant doctrinal uh, similarities to Lutherans, and the Lutherans had read the Institutes and found that they, they had a lot in common with him. And so they signed the Zurich Consensus, which gave um, official recognition um, but in 1552, a man by the name of Joachim Westphal published a treatise against Calvin based upon his understanding of the communion. Um, Calvin advocated for a modified Lutheran position in which Christ was spiritually present at the table um, with us by the Holy Spirit. He did not think that the Lutheran position of that the that the bread and wine have the body in and around the, the bread as it's localized. But Calvin said, no, um, actually Christ's presence is with us, but his presence is through the Holy Spirit and we come to meet our Savior at the table. Um, during the next 12 years, uh, the, ch the church established a consistory, it's called, in which there were four different uh, positions um, established. There was pastors and doctors, elders and deacons, and uh, he established uh, an orderly way to organize the church. Now, in 1553, a very famous event occurred, which, which has put Calvin into a very negative opinion in a lot of people's minds. 
1553, there was a period of time in which opposition to Calvin came into play again, and a man by the name of Michael Severtus, who was a noted physician in Europe generally, he was pretty well known, but he was also known as being an anti-Trinitarian. He, 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 he came underneath of the observation of the French Inquisition, and he was imprisoned and very likely would have been burned to death as a heretic. Um, he, he escaped prison, and he ended up in Geneva, and he was observed to be in, pr in, in Geneva. He was arrested. And now the question is, now what do we do with this person that the Catholic Church wants to kill, but we're trying to be a Protestant what, what do we do with this, this heretic? And so the city council reached out for advice to neighboring Protestant cities, what they ought to do. And they came to the conclusion that because he was a heretic on the matters of Nicaea, that is widely accepted by Protestants as well as Catholics, that he would be very well condemned as a heretic. Um, and he was burned to death by the Protestants in Geneva, which is remarkable because I believe I'm not I want to say I can't say this dogmatically, but it would have been one of the first examples of Protestant group of people doing what the Catholics had done and burning someone for her as a heretic. Um, Calvin, incidentally, had advocated for less or more humane means of killing, which was beheading. That doesn't sound great either. <laughs> But if you consider the two, one's quicker <laughs> uh, uh, than the other. Um, so, but the event has become a symbol of a rigid dogmatism of Calvin in Geneva. Uh, but it is good to note that if he had escaped, you know, Geneva and ended up back in France, he would have been burned there too. <laughs> um, not that that makes it any greater, um, but just the reality of it and the time period and how people were thinking. Um, in 1558, Calvin started the Geneva Academy, which was a theological training center for pastors. And in its operation, um, and by the time of Calvin's death, the school had had 1,500 students to go out into Protestant communities to be pastors. Uh, really filled an important void. Um, in 1559, Calvin completed his final definitive edition of the Institutes, and he completed commentaries on 24 Old Testament books, 24 New Testament books, all except 2nd and 3rd John and Revelation. And after ongoing illnesses, he died May 27th, 1564, at the age of 55. And whenever I hear about guys like this, I think to myself, what am I doing? <laughs> These people have like have less time and accomplished so much more. It's really remarkable. It also probably speaks to the kinds of distractions that we have in our life as well. But I, I, I wanted to kind of acquaint you with his life so that you understand the significance of some of his writings as it relates to the Council of Trent. Um, he, Calvin was uh, an important he was called back to Geneva to defend Protestantism, and he wrote at that time about the significance of sola scriptura, but also sola fide, justification by faith alone. And this gets really practical for us, I think, as we try to think through Catholicism and also scriptural interpretation. 
and what the true gospel is. Uh, the Council of Trent was the official response um, the official response to the uh, uh, Protestant Reformation, and it truly marks the divergence between Protestants and Catholics today. Uh, Trent could hardly be called an ecumenical council, like the first councils of the church, where the broad territorial representation, uh, there was not broad territorial representation. Uh, most of the council was made up of Italians, uh, even though it was in Trent, which at that time was located just on the fringe edge of Germany. Um, it was, uh, you know, 70% of the bishops present uh, were actually Italian. And uh, if it was, it, it, if its objective was to be a jury to find Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, you know, guilty of doctrinal error, um, it was definitely a very biased council. Um, and um, so they, they, they struggled, actually, in their, their council to come to agreement, ultimately, upon matters of what is the true authority of Scripture and even understanding justification. As you read the documents that came out of Trent, you can actually see the tensions. Some of it reads very much like a Protestant document. But then when you get to the second half, it starts to, to fall right off the cliff. And you can see the tensions that exist with, within the document. Um, the council was held at the city of Trent in northern Italy um, over an 18-year period. Um, it was close enough for Rome so that the Pope could would retain some control over it. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't satisfying the original purpose for which it was, in, it was requested. Um, if you recall, in 1521-23, in that range, Luther had just posted his theses, his 95 theses, and Charles V was emperor, and he wanted some answers from the Catholic Church to respond to the Lutheran claims. He requested a council to be established and uh, he, he requested it, but unfortunately, there was a, a slow lag to get it going. If you remember, we had this discussion last Sunday that popes were afraid of councils, right? Popes were afraid of councils because every time a council met, it tended to limit the authority of the pope. So what would happen if they had a council meet that represented all these geographical areas that would they, would they actually then side with Luther? And there was a lot of fear. Um, Charles V, uh, there were a lot of turmoil uh, during that time period, a lot of political turmoil. And I won't go into all of the, uh, the machinations between the French, the, the Germans, and the Italians, but it was not a good time for a pope to, to put up a council. Um, and so I want to just mention that there was... Uh, during this time period, there was a bull that came out that excommunicated Martin Luther, um, and the Council of Trent, 25 years later, the papacy feared calling a council that it could not control. So it took 25 years uh, for this to, to come, come into being. Now, the Council of Trent did address some structural problems that, that existed throughout Europe. Uh, the reformers had made 
significant, shed significant light on the corruptions within Catholicism. Um, so the structural issues were addressed. And I would say that that was a good result of the Council of Trent. Because on the eve of the Reformation, only half of pastors resided in their parishes. Think about that. In Geneva, things were even worse. Only 20% lived within their parishes. In other words, priests were actually pocketing income and leaving their flocks unshepherded and uncared for. Popes controlled the appointment of bishops, and bishops received a passive income from wide swaths of land that they own in their bishoprics. Income was derived from farming. It was derived from land leases. It was derived from the serf-client relationships. In other words, many of these bishoprics were simply a property-owning venture for these people. And passive income multiplied. And if you could, I mean, if it was good to own one bishopric, you might as well have two bishoprics. And this passive income corrupted the leadership of the Catholic Church. And many popes would gift bishops, bishop positions to relatives, or they would sell them for cash to the highest bidder. And that was uh, often called the practice of simony. <coughs> Do you remember Simon the Sorcerer in the book of Acts? He said to Peter, if you could just give me the power that you have, I will give you money for it. So this is kind of wh where that's come from. Um, and so the Council of Trent did reform a lot of these issues. And lastly, the council determined that you could not hold multiple uh, church offices simultaneously, and that any illiterate or moral local priest could be then deprived of their offices for failure to set the right example. And so there were some positives that came out of it. If, if you know, that those are encouraging things, but uh, then they went to the doctrinal issues. And the doctrinal reforms uh, did not go as well, unfortunately. Um, and this is what really took the council so long to work out the political aspects. <coughs> Jonah, could you go get me a cup of water, please? Coffee's not going to do it. So the doctrinal charge was leveled against Roman Catholicism center on two issues, the doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And in dealing with Scripture, the question regarded that the council needed to figure out was on what basis could they make a legitimate point of doctrine? Like, at what, what, what level of appeal is appropriate? Many of the doctrines that the Reformers opposed, like, for example, purgatory and distinction between mortal and venial sins, thank you, were actually only found in the Apocrypha. Um, they were sometimes called deuterocanonical books or second canon, deutero meaning second. And the authority of the Apocrypha was a long-standing contention as to, to what weight do you 
put on this. Now, Jerome and Augustine disagreed over whether to include the Apocrypha. Augustine had a view of a wide canon, and he said, well, no, we need to keep the 73 books, and we need to add in the Apocrypha, and a lot of the Catholic Church leaned in his direction. Now, Jerome believed that the 66 books were sufficient, and unfortunately, his, his advice did not tend to sway others, even though he was the first translator of, of the Bible into Latin. And so uh, there was a, a, a lot of dis... So Trent sometimes uh, can be looked at as the, the definitive rejection of Protestantism, but even in the documents that we still have access to, there was disagreement even at the council. For example, there were some bishops who said, you know, we should not try to resolve questions long disputed among reputable theologians. And there were some who, who considered that the supreme authority uh, should not come from apocryphal books. And uh, yet the council came to a definitive conclusion, though it said, if anyone does not accept as sacred the canonical and the aforesaid books in the entirety with all their parts, let them be accursed or athematized. And so this, this, this period marked the beginning of the Roman claim of the supremacy of the church over the scriptures. Two additional issues that came out of this is uh, they began to recognize two modes of revelation. Um, the unwritten or the written authorities. Um, I just want to to read one of the decrees here that comes from the council documents in which they state, it is also per clearly perceived that these truths concerning the gospel and the rules are contained in the written books and in unwritten traditions, which received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating, having come down to us, transmitted as it were from the hand to hand. Since God is the author of both, and also the traditions, whether they relate to faith or to morals, as having been dictated either orally by Christ or by the Holy Ghost, and preserved in the Catholic Church in unbroken succession. And so what they said, basically, is that we're going to venerate the unwritten traditions and elevate them to the same level of authority as the written documents that the apostles handed to us. Uh, the same process by the Holy Spirit ensures. And basically what they created is a problem of there's now no way to argue with them. The, the, the Protestants were saying, no, we, we were, it's Scripture alone, and, and now the Catholic Church knows everything that we have said alone. And it's kind of like we know we're right because we've always done it this way. That's really what it comes down to. And... Uh, one thing that I think sometimes people misunderstand about the Council of Trent is that sometimes it's implied that the Latin Vulgate was elevated to the only version that would be permitted. Um, the documents actually testify, actually, that Latin was a legitimate option for the scriptures, um, but it was not obligatory. But a lot, of, a lot of the church during that time period still maintained the use of the Latin. But the most important aspect 
of the council was the issue of the doctrine of justification and original sin. And so Trent turned to the doctrine of original sin and justification, and the story gets very complicated at this point. The Council of Trent spent seven months working out its decrees and canons on this doctrine. Now, Trent's goal was to find a middle ground between Pelagius and Augustine on original sin because widespread throughout the Catholic Church, there was this very optimistic view that you could work out your salvation through the system. And uh, they were also very concerned about the excesses of the Reformation theology on justification because they feared that if you just let the people go, then they will become lawless. They need to have restraints. And, uh, but not all Catholic theologians, especially the members of the Augustinian order, were convinced that Luther was altogether wrong. And so it took seven months for them to work it out because there were so many negotiations because there was truth that was being recognized by some of the Augustinians. Um, and so as you read through it, the cause of justification is presented in such a way that the first half appears like a Protestant document. And uh, so, for example, it's very striking that in chapter 8, the sixth section, it declares, we are said to receive justification as a free gift because nothing precedes justification, neither faith nor works. Uh, and this would merit the grace of justification, for it is by grace, it is no longer of the basis of works. Otherwise, as the apostle says in Romans 11.6, grace would no longer be grace. Another chapter says that the wicked are justified by God by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. At the same time, acknowledging that they are sinners, they turn from the fear of divine justice, which profitably strikes them to thoughts of God's mercy. They rise to hope with confidence that God will be favorable to them for Christ's sake, and they begin to love him as the fount of all justness. They are thereby turned against sin by a feeling of hatred and uh, detestation, namely, by that repentance which must occur before baptism. So you read that and you realize, man, that sounds very Protestant. And I think I had a conversation with the brother, brother Mitch here before the service and said, you know, I know people who are Catholic who, who probably have real faith. Well, it's as a result of all of this confusion. On the one hand, you hear that you are, can be justified freely by faith, but then on the other hand, you, you, you hear that you've got to do these penitential acts and virtues and, and kind of be faithful to the system. Um, if Trent had actually stopped here, it'd be okay. But it, the, problem, the problem is that they went further and complicated and undermined Christian assurance. They said no one can know by that assurance of faith which excludes all falsehood that he has obtained the grace of God. And so they undercut at the same time. Um, and what they would say is, you know, we've been justified in Christ apart from merit, but having been granted a pure and spotless state, we must now carry it. We must now carry this pure and spotless state until we appear before the tribunal of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Um, in other words, the gospel, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is great news. At your baptism, you're justified. It's a state of grace. You're adopted. You're accepted until you sin. And then it's not great news. <laughs> and so, at that point, the sacraments of confession, absolution, penance come into play in order to restore you to that state of grace that you had before your, at your baptism. And so these are the key, these are key elements. And uh, I want to just compare with you Trent's articulation of the cause for why a person can be justified by faith compared to how Calvin articulated it and I think you'll be able to see the significant difference. Um, they're using a methodology of reasoning that Aristotle um, proposed. If you ever want to get to a reason for something, you have to answer the four whys. Like why, uh, you want to get the cause of something, you can back it, back it, back it, back to its very foundational principle. And uh, it's a really helpful tool for analysis. So as you, as you hear, for example, in Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, you'll hear these four causes, but they also show up in the Council of Trent because they're using the same system of reasoning. So in the Institutes of Christian Religion, Calvin draws on these four causes to show how salvation is by grace alone received by faith. He says, the scripture everywhere proclaims that the efficient cause of our obtaining eternal life is the mercy of the Heavenly Father and his freely given love towards us. Surely the material cause is Christ with his obedience through which he acquired righteousness for us. What shall we say is the formal or the instrumental cause but faith? And as for the final cause, the apostle testifies that it consists both in the proof of divine justice and in the praise of God's goodness. Now, if you look at the back, on the back page here, um, I also have it on the wall, um, you have a side-by-side -side comparison of these clauses, and you see Calvin's on the right, and then you see Trent's on the left, or from my perspective. Um, so the final, this is for God's glory and in display of his goodness. And the efficient cause, the source of this, is the mercy of our Heavenly Father. And the material, the substance, what actually affects it, what, what, what brings it to fruition, is Christ with his obedience to the death of the cross. And it is the formal means, like, like what, what is it that, that does this? It's through faith in his blood. That's what brings justification and right standing before God. Now, Trent, on the other hand, is consistent, the first three, are the same, essentially, right? They, they said the final goal here is the glory of God and of Christ, and the efficient cause, the God of mercy. The material cause, our Lord Jesus Christ. But the means is drastically different. See the difference? The formal cause of Council of Trent says it's the sacrament of baptism that effects your salvation. That's a work. Go ahead. Yes. 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 That's right. Yep, I went to my Abby's uncle's Catholic funeral 
And they said, his, based upon his baptism, he has assurance of entrance at some point into uh, heaven once he passes through the purgatory. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to just point out one thing. Um, there's something that we should clarify, though, is that um, I think there's some things that even Catholics and even Protestants don't understand today. And Trent makes some wrong assumptions of what Protestants mean by justification by faith. And um, the, council, the council actually said, I'll just read it, it says, he says, the council's sixth session on justification says, it must not be maintained that they who are truly justified must needs without any doubt whatever convince themselves that they are justified and that no one is absolved from sins and justified except that uh, believes with certainty that he is absolved and justified and that absolution and justification are effected by this faith alone. What they were saying is you can't, you can't just look at the fact that you claim faith as the sense in which you can be assured that you have faith. And sadly, Trent misunderstood the object of the faith is what makes a difference. And honestly, a lot of Protestants misunderstand this too. And... The opposite of trusting in your works for your righteousness is not trusting in your faith, okay? But trusting in Christ's work on the cross. You don't want to have a, a self-fulfilling prophecy mindset in which, like, I have faith, therefore I must be saved. And I put all this confidence. I did this as a kid. I had such lack of assurance of salvation because I was trusting in the prayer I prayed when I was five, rather than putting my heart's focus upon what Christ did. Faith in object, right, the object of our faith. Yes. Um, and so it's really important to see the difference there. And um, I would like just to close by saying, you know, count, uh, Vatican, Vatican Council II, which occurred in the 60s, did not resolve this problem. Um, they reaffirmed everything that Trent said, but then they went and said, well, you Protestants... You Protestants are like close Christians. You have a baptism, and that baptism saves you. And they basically declared us as being Christians by virtue of the fact that we went through waters of baptism. Huh? That was very kind and gracious of them. <laughs> but they said the Catholic Church accepts those born Protestant with respect and, and affection as brothers who all have been justified by faith in baptism are incorporated into Christ. They therefore have a right to be called Christians and with good reason are accepted as brothers in the Lord by the Christian, by the children of the Catholic Church. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is the Reformation over? I would say no. The material and the formal are still there. The formal being that they still deny Scripture alone as the chief authority. And then secondly, uh, their uh, material difference on justification by faith. And so as long as those things are unresolved, we still are uh, not brothers in that respect. So thank you again for coming. I hope I answered a few of your questions, and you're always welcome to ask more after. Thanks for coming.